We have been uh, working through a series about hospitality, uh, about what it means to radically open up our hearts, our homes, our fridges to experience the grace and the love of God uh, around a simple meal table. And, and I've been exploring a scripture um, from the Gospel of Luke, one of the accounts of Jesus' life, Luke 7, 33 to 34. Uh, and in this scripture, I love this picture, <laughs> happy Jesus rather than crucified Jesus and, and uh, it's the Jesus on the other side of the cross and possibly the Jesus before the cross. But um, Jesus says this, that John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine and you say he has a demon. The son of man, who is Jesus, uh, came eating and drinking and you say here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners but wisdom is proved right by all her children. Which really just means the proof is in the pudding. So um, the Son of Man came eating and drinking and he was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And, and I've been exploring this idea that um, there was something holy about Jesus. Uh, his humanity and his divinity was shown around the meal table and the life that he lived and the life that he calls us to live as apprentices of Jesus. So last uh, sermon, I spoke about the heart of hospitality, the heart that God puts within us and the motivation that is within us as we open our homes, our fridges and our tables and eat with people around us as family and as a community. And I talked about how Jesus turned water into wine, which is an amazing miracle, you know, 100 litres of Pinot, <laughs> Pinot and, uh, and how it, uh, he brought the extraordinary into the ordinary, and that's what he can do in our lives. He can bring the kingdom of God to be around us, uh, around a meal table. But the heart isn't about food and drink. Uh, the heart of Christianity, the heart of Christian hospitality is about longing to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven and to see something happen around a meal table that is extraordinary. Uh, again, it is about miracles. So today we're going to move on from the heart and I want to talk about what it means to eat as neighbours, uh, what it means to share life around table with friends and with neighbours who do not necessarily share our faith or our belief. And so far, I've mainly focused on the idea of communion. So the idea that uh, eating around a table and remembering Jesus, his body and his blood, as we eat together as apprentices of Jesus, so it's community, it's an expression of church. So I've mainly focused on what it means to eat together as believers, but I really want to talk about what it means to eat, uh, not just according to communion, but according to the Great Commission. Uh, so commission is the other term which... We, we know if we're followers of Jesus that Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, um, and uh, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. So part of that great commission is to open our table, not to just each other, but to those who are yet to know him. Uh, and often they are literally our neighbors. And I'm going to share some stories today from our life uh, of eating with neighbors. And so we'll explore what it means to eat um, with neighbors as apprentices of Jesus, uh, and I'll share stories about how the dinner table can be a missional space, not just a social space. And my heart really is to maybe inspire and encourage us to share a table with our friends, our neighbours, uh, people who aren't yet apprentices of Jesus, and to trust that as we do this in a loving and generous way, that God's kingdom can and will break through and some amazing things can happen. Uh, we can hear beautiful stories, like the one we heard from Chris just before, um, which I just really love. So, 
Uh, Mike, Mike Frost, who writes a lot of stuff about mission uh, in a book called Exiles, he wrote this in the 90s. He said that Christianity is a, in a ghetto is not Christianity at all. If we retreat into our own compounds and eat our own meat, uh, sharing our tables only with other Christians, then our, sh- our faith becomes non-missional. Now again, he wrote this in the 90s, and I actually think our culture and our context has changed a lot since then. It's very, very hard to live in a ghetto nowadays because everyone and everything around us is secular. It doesn't believe in God. It believes that the most important person in the world is me. And um, so it's very hard to actually live in a ghetto, but there is certainly this sense that um, if we're going to live radical lives of hospitality, then we need to break out of our own kind of comfort zones and uh, eat in a way that's different than secular culture around us. See, one of the things that I find interesting about secular culture, so that's the the name I give to the culture of Australia right now, is that um, we love everyone and we're tolerant and we accept everyone. You know, everyone is like, we love everyone in the world and yet in reality, we only eat with people like us. You know, the majority of Aussies eat with people who earn the same amount of money, think the same way, have the same political beliefs, look the same, come from the same socioeconomic background. Um, doesn't matter whether you're gay or straight, whether you're left or right wing, you eat with people exactly the same as you, and yet you love the whole world. Um, but Jesus says something very different. He calls us as apprentices of Jesus to actually share our table with people who are different, uh, to have a breadth of age, uh, a breadth of socioeconomics, a breadth of eating with people who aren't like us. So we can be extremely radical in our day and age by loving those who are not like us around a meal table, and often they are simply our neighbours. Um, because what I've found is a lot of our neighbours think very differently to us and act very different and have different ways of thinking and different moulds and belief structures. And so it's a beautiful thing to get out of our ghetto and to share life as apprentices with those who think differently. Uh, It's very unconventional and it's a beautiful expression of faith. So uh, to do that, I want to dive into a scripture about a man called Zacchaeus. So it's from Luke, um, the Gospel of Luke, an account of Jesus. Uh, chapter 19 verses 1 to 10 and um, it's a story about uh, a little man called Zacchaeus it's a famous story Um, you've probably heard it before he climbed a tree in order to eat with Jesus let's have a read Uh here we are Uh, Jesus entered Jericho so Jericho is a city not that far from Jerusalem where Jesus ended up dying so Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. I've never had that problem. I really love going to concerts. Um, So he he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore tree, uh, a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Uh, When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So basically, hi Zacchaeus, I need a free meal. Um, So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be with the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. 
I didn't know what a sycamore tree looked like. And I thought, what does a sycamore fig tree look like? I don't think that this is the tree that he, he was in, but it's amazing how big they grow. In fact, this is a picture of a sycamore fig tree. Uh, they grow little figs. And um, I saw an image of this with a leopard in it, which is amazing. Apparently, leopards quite like sitting there, so that could have been dangerous if there was a leopard for Zacchaeus. Um, but <clears throat> let's go through this scripture because, as usual, we need to understand our context if we're going to understand exactly what it is that Jesus is saying. So uh, we start with Zacchaeus. So he, he was a tax collector. That's really fundamental to understand, and it needs a bit of explanation. Um, so Israel was under Roman occupation. So Israel was no longer owned and ruled by its own people. The Roman army had come in and the empire had taken over and the Jewish people in Israel were under oppression. And look, Rome was a huge empire expanding from Europe all the way to Asia and it was cruel, it was oppressive and it was extremely violent. And so it was really tough being a Jewish nation oppressed by a Roman occupying army. And look, about the time of Jesus' birth, just before uh, Israel was ruled by a guy called Herod the Great, who had been appointed by Caesar, Augustus, I think. And um, Herod had three sons. <coughs> and uh, around Jesus' lifetime, what had happened is Herod had died. His three sons had taken three parts of the kingdom of Israel and they ruled it separately. Uh, they called it tetrarchs. But um, the thing is that whenever you crossed a region, let's say you went from Galilee in the north to Judea in the south, then you crossed one of the borders between the three sons and you had to pay a tax. You had to pay a toll. Um, and Ro Romans in general were very cruel in the way they applied taxes. So what they did is they basically took everything. They took everything and left people in poverty and created subservient people. And they put their money to basically pay for their roads and their infrastructure and mainly for their army to maintain their massive occupation and to keep people subjugated. So how do tax collectors play into this? Well, they played a big role because tax kept the Roman army uh, ticking. And so tax collectors were Jews. They were Jewish collaborators who um, aligned themselves with the enemy rather than with their own countrymen. Uh, they, traded, uh, they traded their own nationality for profit. And they made a lot of money because not only did they take money for the Romans, they took a cut for themselves. So they would actually take this huge amount of tax and then they would set their own fees and they would make a cut and make a lot of money. And so there was no regulation, there was no consistency. If, if you're walking along and a tax collector says, I need this much money, and you think it's unfair, well, there's no point arguing because you don't get a choice. If you argued, the tax collector would simply double your tax. Um, and if you then complained, they would get the Roman guard to come over who would brutalise you and your family because they were protected by the Romans. It was an incredibly unjust system. It wasn't like a, an annoying parking fine that you get if you leave your car for too long. It was just, it was repressive. Uh, it crippled fi families financially. It destroyed human dignity. Um, so tax collectors were obviously hated. And that's really important to understand. They're hated by the Jews um, and they traded their reputation and their honour to make money, uh, to get the security of wealth. So, so Luke speaks about this guy called Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector, uh, and he climbed a tree. And it's interesting because it says that he's short. And in all the kids' kind of Sunday school sermons, everyone remembers, oh, there's this little man who climbed a tree. Okay, but the interesting thing is many commentators think that he didn't just climb the tree because he was short. He probably climbed the tree because it was dangerous to be down amongst his fellow Jews in a crowd. 
Um, so there were these people, a sect of Judaism called Zealots. Okay, so we might have heard of Zealots, they're in the Bible. And Zealots were basically freedom fighters, they were mercenaries who wanted to, dist- he wanted to violently rid um, Israel of Roman occupation. And there was one group called the Sicarii. Uh, or the dagger men, I like that interpretation more. The dagger men basically walked along with this massive knife hidden under their kind of coats and they would walk through a crowd and they would find a tax collector or a collaborator or someone who was sympathetic to the Roman army and they would stab him in the back and keep walking and then the crowd would basically look and there'd be a person bleeding and dying in the crowd and no one knew who killed them. It was really common. Okay, and so um, it was probably safer, I mean, as long as there wasn't a leopard in the tree, it was probably safer for Zacchaeus to be in a tree than it was to be on the ground in a crowd, right? And I think that kind of context is really important to understand. It wasn't a safe place. Uh, actually, of interest, and this is a side point, but Jesus had 12 disciples, didn't he? And one was called Matthew. And what was Matthew's job? He was a tax collector. And the other disciples, the apostles, the founding fathers of the church, was a guy called Simon. What was Simon? He was a zealot. I don't know if he was a Sakari zealot, but he was a zealot. He was a freedom fighter. So it's, I think it's just like Jesus, isn't it? To take two radically different people um, who are socially and politically divided and make them a community. That seems to describe what the church should be. Um, pretty amazing. Anyway, uh, so look, whatever Zacchaeus' motive was, whether it was because he was short or because he didn't want to get stabbed by the dagger men, um, I suppose it's not normal behaviour to climb a tree. Um, And there was something about him, he ran and he was hungry to see Jesus and to meet Jesus. There was something in his spirit that had been moved by the Spirit of God to reach out and to meet this Messiah, um, this rabbi called Jesus. And so that we can only imagine what was in his heart and what was motivating him. But all I can tell is that something was stirring in Zacchaeus. He wanted a change of life. And, um, you know, maybe he'd heard about Jesus creating miracles. Uh, Maybe he had sickness in his family and he had heard about Jesus being a healer. I I don't know what it is. Maybe he actually was friends with Matthew or he knew Matthew and he realised that actually Matthew's life had totally changed and I want something similar. But... Whatever it was, he was hungry and, um, and he needed a change in his life. And I think that's important. You know, I, we look at Zacchaeus and we know he was rich, but I reckon it must have been a pretty horrendous life to be wealthy off the back of your own community. You know, he would have been discriminated by the Romans because Romans hated Jews. Um, so he wasn't, he wasn't friends with the Romans and yet he would have been hated by his own countrymen and money only goes so far if um, you, you earn it at the expense of friends and community and honour and reputation. I, I think he probably actually had hunger in him for a different life and he didn't know how to get out of it. Um, and, and so what happens, as we read in the story, is that Jesus is walking and rather than seeing the crowd, he looks up and he spots, he sees Zacchaeus in the tree and he says, Zacchaeus, come down, I need to eat at your house. Um, And I think what we see here, it's unspoken, but Jesus somehow, he looks at this man in the tree and he sees the hunger, uh, the spiritual hunger in Zacchaeus' life and he sees that there is something in this man um, prepared by God to receive the message of the kingdom of God and he calls him. And I think that's what, Jesus sees people in a way that we don't see them. He sees into their heart and he sees their spirit and he calls people to himself. Um, And... And as a response, 
um, he causes problems for himself. So all the people look at Jesus and they think, isn't he meant to be a rabbi? He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. I mean, he's gone to be a guest of a tax collector, one of those terrible dogs, those scandalous traitors that we absolutely hate. And yet Jesus, who is like this rabbi, is eating with them. No wonder he gained the reputation of a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Um, but I think what we see here is it ends up becoming this beautiful and surprising story because remember, people who read this, the Jewish people who heard this story in the original accounts of the gospel, they would have been expecting something to happen. And yet, the opposite happens, that Zacchaeus receives love and grace and acceptance from Jesus and is transformed. And so I just want to share this last bit, that Zacchaeus, after hearing the message of the kingdom of God, after sharing a meal with Jesus in his own house, <laughs> after, after engaging somehow with this rabbi come messiah his life is changed and he calls him lord and the, the word lord in the original text in greek is kyrios and kyrios simply means um, a person of higher status or authority it doesn't actually mean god it means someone who has authority over us we we live in a democratic secular society we don't really understand this kind of cultural context but um but really, he calls, him, he calls him king, rabbi, lord. And um, he may not have recognized that Jesus was God in the way we do, but he recognized that he needed to give up his life and come under the lordship and the kingship and the authority of this new person, Jesus. But that's really, really different because what Zacchaeus had done is he had actually called Caesar Tiberius lord. Okay, so the Caesar asked for tax collectors to call them Lord and Saviour. And so that's what he had done. He'd, he'd turned from his countrymen and he had bowed his knee and he had called Caesar Lord. And he had oriented his whole life around the con consumption and the accumulation of personal wealth. And so in this situation, he changes his lordship, which is a complete reversal. Um, and it comes at great cost, which is very much the path of apprenticeship. And uh, when Zacchaeus says, if I have cheated anybody out of anything, then that, that's hyperbole. I mean, he absolutely has cheated a lot of people out of a lot of stuff. I do look at the maths and I always r wrestle with that because I don't know how you can pay back four times the amount when you ripped off everyone. Um, but, you know, I suppose what we see here is that this 180 degree repentance, this turn, this changing in his mind, which is what repentance means, where he turned from one lordship from Caesar and money to one which is the kingdom of God and Jesus, it cost him everything. Uh, he went from being a rich man to a poor man. There is no way he could have um, fulfilled that promise without giving up status and wealth and power and prestige um, and entered a new way of living, which is the way of the apprentice you die to yourself your old self in order to find life in jesus it is a radical turning and and the beautiful thing is in exchange he got what we get um he gets a new identity rather than being the tax collector the dog the traitor of israel he becomes a true son of abraham he becomes a son of god loved by god blessed by jesus known by the father who created heaven and earth he actually gets a new identity and it changes him from the inside out. So it's a really beautiful story. Um, and, and Jesus explains the whole story in this beautiful, simple um, sentence at the end. He says, for the Son of Man, and this is Jesus, 
he calls this the himself the son of man for the son of man came to seek and save the lost um, and it explains the whole thing so at first glance this passage doesn't have a lot to do with eating as neighbors around a table but i want to show you that it has everything to do with eating as neighbors around a table there is something radical in this story about what it means to have a heart like jesus to seek and save those who are lost uh, but also to have a heart like zacchaeus to be hungry for jesus and to see the kingdom of god come today around a meal table so there are three principles i won't go into these in great detail and then i want to share a story about how we apply these in our own context in south hobart um, so for zacchaeus um, we need to look for a Zacchaeus in the crowd. Uh, we need to eat regularly with people like Zacchaeus. Uh, and we need to direct people who are lost to Jesus so they can have their lives transformed. Okay, so they're the three principles. Look for Zacchaeus in the crowd. Eat regularly with people like Zacchaeus and introduce those who are lost to Jesus. So I'll go through briefly. Um, look for Zacchaeus in the crowd. So look, Jesus didn't call everyone okay he looked at the crowd and there was lots and lots of people and he looks for one person he says Zacchaeus you're in a tree come down I'm going to eat with you okay there's something you see this all through the gospels he'll be walking through crowds of people and he'll say who touched me and there's one lady who was healed he'll be walking through he'll say do you need healing and, and one person in this pool of Salaam gets healed so there's this sense where Jesus is looking for the the person who is hungry for transformation a God-prepared person uh, the scriptures call it a person of peace. Okay, that the Spirit of God prepares people in advance to receive his message. Jesus says, I only do what I see the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, so I do also. So there's this sense where Jesus is looking to see who God has prepared and he calls them out and he looks for Zacchaeus in the crowd. Um, so we only can do this if we are aligned with Jesus, if we are listening to him humbly and seeking to do what we see the Father doing and hearing things spiritually. But when we do, we can have this incredible experience where we actually discern, wow, God's spirit is on this person and they are like Zacchaeus. They are hungry to respond to the message and hungry to have their lives changed. They're hungry to experience miracles. Um, so, uh, person of peace, a uh, bit of theories. So this is from Luke chapter 10. And Jesus sends out his disciples in pairs. And he says, look for a house of peace, look for a person of peace. And the person of peace is a God-prepared person, a person prepared by the Spirit in advance to receive the message of the kingdom and to start something. Uh, and they like you, they listen to you and they serve you. This is Mike Breen's definition. A person of peace, they like you, they like not just who you are because you're a cool, funky person, um, even though I just think I'm cool. Um, they like, <laughs> in joke, um, they, they like us. Um, but they like the God in us, okay? So they, they like the, the spirituality of us. They listen to us. And not just the words we use, but there's something about a curiosity about the things we talk about. They don't have to be Jesus conversations, but there's a, a, a curiosity, a spirituality, a depth in the listening. And they serve. Um, in Luke 10, it is the person of peace who actually welcomes you, who feeds you, and who blesses you. Um, which is a different way, it's a reverse hospitality. Okay? Most of the time Jesus received hospitality even as he gave it. So they serve us and that's a really key um, litmus test for a person of peace. Do they bless you? Um, do they bless you?
we were walking around the streets um, a few months ago and, and praying for a person of peace and I had a conversation with someone and they gave us a gift from their shop. I'm like, that could be a person of peace because they blessed us. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, okay, so that's the test. And the, the, the interesting thing is the only way you identify a person of peace is by looking with spiritual eyes, not just human eyes. And the easiest way to do that is to be spiritual yourself. So when we are open about our faith, our love for Jesus, when we talk about our apprenticeship with Jesus, just using natural words, could be as simple as saying grace at the dinner table or talking about what we did at church or, or sharing something on our heart about our faith. If we do that in the everydayness of life, then we tend to see the people of peace, the God-prepared people. You know, when I say, people say, what do you do? And I say, I'm a productivity consultant and I lead a community of churches. Uh, and nine in ten people say, oh, tell me about your business. <laughs> and they're not remotely interested in being the pastor side of things. But um, the one in ten, you know, it's, it's not a statistic, I'm just making this up, but about one in ten um, actually will ask, oh, that's interesting. So what does that mean? Oh, I'm a pastor. Oh, you create communities. Oh, we worship and pray. And, like, and I kind of think, well, if you're interested, you might be a person of peace. Yeah, and we look for these people along the way. We look for Zacchaeus who are prepared. So I suppose the aim is to be spiritual, be open about who we are in the everydayness of life. Uh, without that, you won't find them. God is looking for us to respond before he responds. Um, I don't mean bashing people with the Bible, but I just mean being transparent and open and loving about who we are and who we love. Uh, and that's really the test. Um, are they part of the crowd or are they waiting up a tree? Okay, so that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is once we find the Zacchaeus, um, people like the Zacchaeus, then let's eat regularly with them because Jesus did. Now, it's harder to just start off a conversation with, hi, how are you? Oh, you seem to be a person of peace. Can I come to your house and can you cook for me? Uh, I think our culture doesn't tend to work like Middle Eastern culture. I think that sounds pretty cool to me. Um, certainly a way to get free meals. But um, I do think that... Uh, we can start by opening up our table and inviting people over, have a coffee, have a meal. And actually, pretty typically, what happens is if people are, are people of peace, if they're God prepared, then they invite you back because they want to serve you equally the same. So it just happens slightly differently in my experience. Um, but the table is a fantastic way to build friendship, community, to share stories. Uh, it's a beautiful way to love people and to be loved. It's a beautiful way. And, um, and both, both eating with people in your home and even more so eating it and receiving hospitality from others is humbling, which is the posture of the apprentice of Jesus. So I found a beautiful quote on um, a blog, a guy called Ryan Cook, and uh, he, he wrote about Christian hospitality. He talked about how he opened up his house for a meal with others, with his neighbours once a week on a Monday night for a few years. Actually, I just heard that Mike Breen does it as well. He calls it Made It Through Monday. And they have a Made It Through Monday meal and they have their whole neighbourhood come and, and they just have these incredible meals with people who aren't apprentices of Jesus and they hear about the gospel and they hear about life. Um, but anyway, so Ryan Cook says this, I learnt that the table is a powerful symbol of a world put right. Uh, at the table, you look people in the eyes. The surface... Of, of the table is level it creates an environment whereby you reach your hands into the same pot take from the same food and sustain your lives in the same way it's a very leveling act 
I really love that idea that we share from the same pot. We make eye contact, we communicate, there's this equalness. I think that's what we see when Jesus lowers himself and invites himself to other people's house. The, the meal is meant to be a kingdom place where kingdom stories can take place. But as we do so, we have an opportunity to be who we are and to share our faith and to hear where people are at as well. So eat regularly with people like Zacchaeus. Uh, and once you've seen them and you eat with them, the other one is to point people in the direction of Jesus. So um, I suppose this is less practical. It's actually about heart and it's about our motivation. Are we passionate like Jesus is and like he was to seek and save those people who are lost? People like Zacchaeus who are hungry. There are people who are hungry and searching for a life change. Um, we walk around and we think, oh, the news is always bad and no one wants to know about religion. God has just changed my mind over the last few years. Secularism does not work. It is exhausting to have to reinvent yourself constantly and to be your own person and to make yourself. And if you stuff up, it's only your fault. It is exhausting to compare yourself with this world and to have no greater hope. Like People are hungry, like Zacchaeus, to get out of this system of consumption and money and materialism and just, oh, it's awful. Um, but we need to be bold enough to actually point them in Jesus' direction because the thing is we do not save and we do not, we do not save the lost. We do not rescue people. That is not our job. Uh, Jesus is the only one can, that can rescue, right? I, just, I can't rescue anyone. I'm stuffed as everyone else. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like Jesus is the one who seeks and saves and Jesus is the one who rescues. I need a saviour and so do we. Um, but our job is to have a heart like Jesus to seek and save the lost and to point them in the direction of Jesus because he will transform your life and he, he does rescue you. Um, Henry Nguyen has this beautiful quote. Uh, he, he says this, Hospitality is not to change people but to offer space where change can take place. The paradox of hospitality is that it wants to create emptiness, not a fearful emptiness, but a friendly emptiness where strangers can enter and find themselves free. Free to sing their own songs, speak their own language, dance their own dances, free to leave and follow their own vacations. You know, hospitality creates space, a space where God can work in people's lives and they can open up and discover the kingdom. I mean, Nguyen goes on to say that space is not all we create. We, we need to be, uh, he says basically we shouldn't be invisible people. Uh, and what he means by that is that um, if you are invisible, if you are silent about your beliefs, if you hold your opinions to yourself and you only listen to what the other says, then it's actually not hospitality at all. Um, to, to be truly hospitable is to create a space for the stranger but then to engage in meaningful conversation, to, to share your ideas, your positions, your viewpoints, even if they differ, and to create a sense of tension and beauty where people can explore your beliefs and you can listen to theirs. And in that space, truth rises to the surface and people often are hungry for the risen one because they've been prepared by God, like Zacchaeus. Okay, so the heart is to be like Jesus, to see people transformed um, and to point people to him. Pause for a minute while I get a drink. I've got a cold, so I need a drink. And just pause to see if God is saying anything to you right now. And then I want to share some stories about how we've applied this in our very own context. 
so it kind of becomes a bit concrete. So look, it can be hard to take these stories and, and to apply them, but this is not the only way to apply them, but I thought it'd be good to share just some ways in which we, at least I am in my little missional community, are a part of trying to take this idea and these principles of Zacchaeus and make them come alive uh, in our missional community. You've already heard from Chris, and that's the story of, of um, a person who has um, been part of our meals and explored faith. But... Um, so this is Stones, uh, it's an older picture now, Hannah's moved on, we have a few, few more people connect in which is beautiful, but um, uh, I don't lead Stones, it's led by our trusty leaders Mick and Jules who are looking very spiritual on the left hand side over there. Um, <coughs> so we meet in a pocket of South Hobart and um, uh, it's an interesting pocket, so we have lots of wealthy middle class families in our street because you know where we live it's, it's pretty close to Sandy Bay and the kind of the the wealthy area of town. Um, but we also have uh, international students, lots of Asian students living as singles in a, a block of units uh, that they're renting right next door. And then we have a whole lot of struggling individuals, struggling families living in high density uh, housing. So, um, uh, so high density public housing, again, and we're all in the same street. It's a pretty remarkable, amazing um, place to live one of the reasons we wanted to live there in the first place and we call ourselves stones which is based on second peter 2 uh, he says um, uh, this is this is from the letter of peter he says as you come to him the living stone uh, rejected by humans but chosen by god and precious to him you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So basically, um, we feel like we are called to be little priests, little stones pointing to Jesus, who is the big stone, um, and, uh, and, and living out a life and a calling of the kingdom. So um, as we seek to be living stones pointing to Jesus, um, we want to create a space where people from all walks of life can do life and community and to hear stories uh, and, and where I, we can find those people who are hungry for a transformed life in our street. So one way to do this, uh, we have a fire uh, every, every, I don't know, every few months. It's simply a way of creating a space where the community can meet uh, from different walks of life. There's something very levelling about a fire, even more levelling in some ways than a, a table. Um, it doesn't matter who you are or where you come from, you're wearing daggy clothes and you sit around the fire and you can just talk and it's, it's beautiful. So um, I like the bush telly, uh, I think it breaks down barriers uh, which we want to do as part of our vision in our street. So um, the last fire pit was really good, um, we had people from the flats, we had people from the units, we had friends, we had neighbours, a whole bunch of different people which was really enjoyable and we eat spuds uh, which we cook. Um, we laugh, we talk, we uh, ended the night playing guitar. Miko put out his guitar and we ended up playing really cheesy songs from the 1990s um, and a whole lot of other stuff, which was really great. Um, the kids jump on the trampoline. There was one point, I think, where the kids were doing Ring-A-Ring-A-Rosie, which was really enjoyable. And, uh, and then the older kids played Spotlight because it was dark and um, we just prayed that no one fell down the hill and no one did. It's pretty, pretty amazing. But so it's, it's just a way in which we can be a community at the end of our street. Um, but here's, here's the thing, as we, as we bake potatoes, as we cook marshmallows, as we, as we have conversations with locals, 
uh, we're actually we're praying as well that we have spiritual eyes like Jesus. We are seeking to see what the Father is doing in and amongst our community. Um, and, and we are looking for whether there is a God-prepared person, a person of peace who is hungry like Zacchaeus for a conversation, for, for an experience of Jesus that is deeper than food and deeper than relationship. You know, are people asking questions about deeper things? Are they seeking to serve? Sometimes people seek to serve because they love the community and sometimes people actually have come to us and they, they love the vision of community on our street and they want to be part of that. Um, are people um, open and needing prayer? I love it when we can pray with people around the fire or around the table and to bless them. Um, are people opening up their relational world to us? Sometimes people come and they actually open up their networks and they say, hey, and they invite other people in the street because they want to connect, uh, which is exactly what you see in the Gospels. So, look, if, if we don't find a person of peace like Zacchaeus, then we just have an awesome time eating spuds and having community and singing songs and loving people and being loved. Um, but if we find a person of peace, then I suppose we, we feel like um, God is even more in our midst and um, we start to create even more space for invitation we start to um, invite them more into our extended family Um, we create more space for relationship uh, and we see what god does here's another expression of our outward life together it's big dinner i've talked about this briefly in one of the first sermons i gave so i won't go into detail but it's a simple rhythm every wednesday night we eat together with a whole lot of people from our street and increasingly it's basically neighbors now which is pretty incredible and we've really been thankful for that um so once a fortnight this is our rhythm once a fortnight we have stones dinner so that's um just people who are followers of jesus apprentices Uh, people who have committed themselves to our life um, around South Hobart. And so we pray, we eat, we we give words of knowledge, we um, explore what it means to um, love one another and to encourage one another. But the other fortnight, we meet and we just have this massive cook-up and we have about 20, 25 or more people all up. Most are neighbours, almost everyone except ourselves aren't yet apprentices of Jesus, um, but they love the sense of community and friendship and warmth and hospitality and we love having them in our lives so we light a um, we light a candle in the background we don't make a deal of it but um we it reminds us that the holy spirit is present and it reminds us that this is more than about food and drink Uh, we say thank you to god before we eat so we know that as grace Um, and i think grace is one of the best ways to lay your cards on the table Uh, you know it's been a practice of ours for years that when we have people come to our house um it doesn't matter if you're a follower of Jesus or not, we still say thank you. We just say, I hope you don't mind, but this is our tradition and this is what we do. We've had so many, so many people come to us and say, the best thing about coming to your house for dinner is we get to say grace um, because I just love it. And then we've had so many other people say, look, we're not followers of Jesus, but now we say thanks before dinner every day. Um, you know, so many, we can get so scared. So, I don't know, I think grace is a great way of um, testing the spiritual temperature of relationships. And sometimes the kids say what they're thankful for. And then we have conversations. Some are light, some are silly. Actually, most of mine are silly. Um, uh, some are deep. Um, some are meaningful. And yet, at the same time, it's a place where, because we're ourselves, we talk about Jesus. And because other people are themselves, they have the freedom to talk about what's on their heart. Um, and I really love that space. So this is how Big Dinner has evolved and grown. Um, but our heart is to point people to the one who seeks and saves the lost. 
is more than about food and drink. It's about being radical around a meal table. Uh, and so the last two things is that the one story I remember, one of our neighbours came and said to us after a few dinners, I really want to be involved. How can I get on the big dinner circuit? Uh, which I really like that term. And so, and, and so we talked about it. So now they bless us. We eat with them and they feed us and they love us and it's awesome. I'm so thankful that they joined the big dinner circuit. And they, they, that's the heart of hospitality. Another neighbour... Uh, Found that was chatting with a neighbour who, who none of us had met, and um, and they were pouring out their heart well, to a sense. They, they were saying how tough life was. I won't go into details, but um, and and the neighbour who came to big dinner uh, said to this new neighbour, "Well, if you live on this street, there is no reason to be alone. If you live on this street, there is no need to do life by yourself because there is a community that will welcome you." And so this person now comes to dinner too. Now I love that 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 someone who is an apprentice of Jesus is, is calling out others to join the vision um, and to welcome people into our tribe. And so sometimes people come and they stay for a bit and then they go, and that's fine. Uh, some people come and they find a place to belong and they love the community, but they're not interested in our beliefs. Uh, and they, they stay for a while, sometimes they stay for a long time. Um, and they're welcome. Uh, some people... Um, belong to our community but then they become hungry for the reason we do what we do and they explore our spiritual gatherings they come to little church they start praying with us and eating and worshiping um, and then there are other people like chris who um, whose story we heard before who who come and and they join us uh, they they give up their life and like zacchaeus they die to themselves they are baptized they come alive again and their lives are changed and they join us in the mission that God's given us as apprentices of Jesus. So, um, but all of it simply happens by eating a meal. Looking for the Zacchaeus, eating with the Zacchaeus and pointing people into the direction of the one who saves. Uh, so we've been doing this for a long time. I mean, this can sound complicated. It's just a simple meal though. So we've been doing this a long time. I don't want this to sound like big and amazing. I mean, it's, it's really just a bunch of people who eat together. <laughs> and, but God does, God does stuff sometimes. And, and if it feels overwhelming, I would just want to encourage you that we've done this for a decade now. And we started with Mick and Jules and Kai and I eating together once a week and just praying and thinking, what is a vision that God is putting on our hearts? Um, and over time, this vision has grown. Over time, uh, big dinner and other fire pits and stuff have started, but it just starts with um, finding one other person or maybe two people who are Christians, people who love Jesus. I think that's where it starts. Eat with them, pray with them, and just say, I wonder, I wonder what God is calling us to do because everyone here is called to be a missionary to transform the world by pointing people to Jesus. Um, start simple. Um, I think it was like three years before we got a vision from God. Okay, hopefully it won't be that slow for you. We are slow learners. But, you know, it just starts off slow. Um, and God can do stuff. And, and I really believe that as you eat regularly with people, God will bring you the God-prepared people. He is more interested in transforming your neighborhood than you are. And it doesn't have to be your neighborhood. It can be people you know. It could be colleagues. I mean, it happens to be on our street. But all I'm saying is have a heart... Um, like Jesus and look for the Zacchaeuses and God will do stuff in your midst. Uh, and if you need help, this sounds like a bit of a plug, if you need help, if you need steak knives, um, 
No, but seriously, if you need help, I'm, we are here to resource and pray with you and equip you and train you and support you. Um, you know, I say to my kids, you're not kids, but I say to my kids, you know, they say, Dad, can you help me? And I say, yes, I will, but I'm not helping you more than you help yourself. You start the dishwasher and then I'll help, but I'm not helping you until you start. And I think it's a discipline, it's a, that is a discipleship principle. I long to help people who want to start churches and I'm here to equip and train people who want to start a missional community, but I won't help you more than you help yourself. So if you want to get started, get started and then we will be there to bless you and encourage you and champion you along the way. And, um, and I'm so thankful there are already people who are starting to say, I'm, I want to see God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Um, so, final quote, and this is beautiful. This is from Jean Vanier, who founded La Arche Communities, a bunch of um, houses for disabled people that is now global. And uh, he writes this, and this is in the 1970s, but I think it's even more relevant today than it was then. In the years to come, we are going to need many small communities which will welcome lost and lonely people, offering them a new form of family and a sense of belonging. In the past, Christians who wanted to follow Jesus opened hospitals and schools. Now, there are so many of these, Christians must commit themselves to new communities of welcome to live with people who have no other family and to show them that they are loved and can grow to greater freedom and that they in turn can love and give life to others. That is a beautiful, beautiful vision. I actually believe actually, schools are even more important than they were ever before, Christian education. But, but gosh, the, the imagination that we need to recapture is to be little communities all across the suburbs of Hobart that transform life one meal at a time.